you're listening to the podcast edition of One Love, One Planet. Mark, it's lovely to have you on the show. First of all, could you just tell our listeners what you do? Just a little bit about you. Okay, um, I'm a geologist and I've spent most of my career looking at the evolution of the biosphere over long time frames. Um, So I'm a paleontologist, I look at the fossil record and most of the time I've been in very deep time looking at rocks five or four hundred million years old. Um, But certainly over the past decade decade or so I've been concentrating my efforts on looking at current changes to the, the biosphere. And so most of my research, most of my PhD students are now working on what's happening around us at, at present. Okay. Can you, are you able to tell us briefly what's happening to our biosphere at the moment? Um, there are some very significant changes to the biosphere. So humans have obviously been interacting with the Earth system for, te- for tens of thousands of years. Um, but the process of change has been accelerating and it's particularly accelerated over the past couple of hundred years and continues to accelerate into the late 20th century and the 21st century. So how is that manifesting in change? So if you think about what we've done to the biosphere over the last 10,000 years, we've halved its mass, literally, by cutting down trees on on the land. Um, And that's been well quantified now in a series of, of, of research studies. Um, we're accelerating patterns of extinction. So there have already been very significant extinctions on, on our, in our island ecologies, for example, but now that process is beginning to unfold more uh, on a larger scale across the landscape. Um, we've translocated literally tens of thousands of species across the planet, um, and many of them are invasive, so that when they arrive in a new ecology, they, they do a great, a great deal of um, damage to it. And they're everywhere. They're in the city of Bristol, and they're everywhere in the UK landscape, they're everywhere across the planet and, and in the oceans. Um, we've concentrated mass in those organisms, those animals and plants that we want to eat. So, and it is a bit of a depressing figure, but if you think about humans and our commensal animals, so sheep and pigs and, and, and cattle, we're 95% of the mass of all terrestrial mammals. Um, we take, you know, well over 100 million tonnes of fish products from the oceans each year. So we are unique in the evolution of the biosphere. You know, the biosphere is 4 billion years old. No species has ever dominated the marine and the terrestrial realm and really dominated it. And I think perhaps the most striking figure of all, I mean, they're all, they're all striking figures and, and, you know, and, and they're all problematic. But the one that I think that really brings it home to me is that you and I as a species, we're now nearly 8 billion, um, and we are more than 99.9% of the numerical abundance of all primates on this planet. The next most abundant primate species is the Bornean gibbon, um, and it, its entire population is the population of Bristol. And that is the next most populous primate species after us on the planet. So we are dominant in a way that no other species has ever been. And although that domination has taken a long time to unfold, and it's unfolded over thousands of years, particularly in the 20th century, it's, it's accelerated at an incredible rate. Wow, that's so interesting. Do you know, I have never heard our current problems with the sort of climate and biodiversity framed in that way that's really well it's it's interesting it's also really scary that's thank you 
um, for painting that picture. I'm sorry, the picture's not not so great. And, and of course, I focus very much on the biosphere there, but the changes to the broader Earth system, to, you know, the biosphere is one component of an Earth system which comprises the atmosphere, the hydrosphere, the geosphere, and the biosphere, and they've been evolving together for billions of years. And they've evolved together in a mutually beneficial way, which has actually made this planet an, an oasis for life in, in, in the universe. Humans and their technological systems are now disrupting that. Um, so many people talk about this idea of a, of a technosphere, which is humans and all of our connected systems, technological systems, farming systems, urban systems. And it is a sphere in the sense of those other spheres, in that it's everywhere on the surface of the planet. You know, wherever you look, even in the deep ocean, you find a trace of the technosphere in microplastics now accumulating in the deep ocean. So it's a sphere in the sense of all the other spheres, that it's everywhere, it's ubiquitous, but it's completely different. Those other components of the Earth system have co-evolved to make this a wonderful place to live. And the technosphere, which we are major culprits in, is actually degrading that. It's a parasite on the rest of the system. And that parasite is degrading the rest of the Earth system, now at a very accelerating rate. Do you know, you've just reminded me of something that I read years ago, and I think it was written by a Japanese architect who said that cities are the equivalent of tumours on the earth. They're very fast moving, they're very hot, they, they're reproducing. Do it, it, that sort of seems to kind of resonate a bit with what you've just been talking about. Does that... Yes, it does. So, so cities have very positive impacts also because they bring together people, a diversity of people, and they're wonderful places for the exchange of ideas. And Hopefully cities can be part of the mechanism that can help us to get to a better place. But in terms of their impact on the Earth system, then I, I see the analogy with, with, with tumours. Um, you know, more, more than half of the human population now lives in urban areas. So for the first time in our history, in the past um, couple of decades, we've become an urban species. But when you look at the patterns of human consumption on the planet, it's very much focused on urban areas. So 70% you know, uh, of water, for example, in fresh water in one, that we use as a species in one way or another is focused on the, on the urban population. And 70% of the pollutants, 70% of the atmospheric CO2 that we've produced is coming from uh, urban centres. So yes, I, I, I see that an analogy with a, with, a, with a tumour, but I think this is much more of a parasite because I think we should think of cities as organisms. Um, as complex evolving organisms that are growing out of the biosphere, a biosphere which has existed for, for billions of years as we've talked about, but ones at the moment that are not evolving in the way that the biosphere has generally evolved to make space, to engineer space for other organisms to thrive in. Yes, so so you'll, we won't be talking about uh, a parasitical relationship, but a symbiotic one then. Is that what you're suggesting? So if we want to if we want to think about the way that cities should be configured in the future, we have a long journey to go on. At the moment, they are effectively parasites and they are degrading the host and the host is the Earth system and, and the biosphere um, within that. Um, that's not how natural ecosystems work. Natural ecosystems are basically predicated on the energy of sunlight. Not all. Some obviously also use chemical sources of energy, but most of the ecology of planet Earth is in some way connected to that, that primary kind of energy source, certainly, certainly on the land. 
cities obviously aren't configured that way because we've decoupled ourselves from that source of energy because we rely on hydrocarbons and, and, and other sources of energy. Um, and that's one way, of course, that we're, we're now degrading the system because we've exceeded the, the capacity of the Earth to, to kind of re- restore itself. The other, the other component, um, which is radically different from, um, from natural ecosystems, is that um, so we're not, you know, our cities are not predicated on sunlight as, as the primary source of energy, or well, fossil sunlight perhaps, um, but also we don't engineer spaces in cities which enable the biosphere to, to thrive. So we engineer spaces which actually shut the biosphere out because um, we want to keep ourselves almost shut off from it. Um, and, and I think, so, so there are two problems here. One is the actual space that the urban areas um, actually um, occupy, which is only a small percentage of the earth, but it is growing. But it is the fact that the hinterland of cities is now planet earth. Um, and in order to sustain the, the energy consumption of cities, we, we have to degrade all of the systems around them. That's very different, I think, from the way the biosphere has evolved over time to engineer spaces for, for diversity. Um, and it's, you know, um, it's very different from the way that species interact in the biosphere in, in mutually beneficial ways. Um, we, we don't do that. We are, we are the, the, you know, the giant parasite on the planet. Not all of us, of course, because some of us consume much more than others, and there's huge inequality in this system. And some people are living a generally very good relationship with, with nature, um, but certainly not in Western cities, we're not. You're talking about how destructive cities are to the biosphere. Do you have... Uh, can cities be beneficial, then? Yes, I think they can. So, so at the moment, the models that we're using to try and evolve our cities towards a better state generally are configured around the ideas of smart cities and sustainable cities. So smart cities obviously try to use um, their energy sources in a, in a very efficient manner and they try to design um, transport systems that are very efficient for moving people around the city. And, and they're, 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 they're good things. I mean, they're, they're trying to go in the right direction. And, and sustainable cities also, which is the term which is generally applied to all cities that want to make themselves greener, are also trying to go down the right path. Um, and they're, they're trying to manage the growth of the economy in the city in a manner which does the minimal or, or tries to do the minimal damage to the, to, to the biosphere around it. Now, now, both are commendable and both are good things to try and support, but neither of them address the fundamental problem here. Um, and the fundamental problem is that for, in order for, for cities really to survive in the long term, we have to start to, to, to evolve them along a path of, of a mutually beneficial relationship with the rest of nature. So that cities are actually supporting the ecologies around them and are almost giving as much back as, as, as they're taking. In fact, trying to give as much back as, as they're taking. So I think you know, many of our models at the moment are, are missing this point completely. Um, you know, there, there, there's a drive towards electric cars. Um, and okay, in the short term, electric cars may have an impact on atmospheric CO2. And clearly atmospheric CO2 is a major problem um, in, the, in the coming um, decades. But, you know, the, 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 the replacing um, petrol and diesel cars with electric cars is not really solving the problem. Um, what it's doing is perpetuating consumption. It's just changing the pattern of consumption. Um, but we're still going to be consuming. And if we all want to drive a car on this, on this planet and we all want to drive an electric car, then that's going to seriously degrade ecologies. 
um, because many of the materials that are used to make the batteries in those cars come from um, you know very important ecologies you know people have been talking about um, deep sea mining um, so mining the ocean floor and particularly mining seamounts because seamounts are, 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 are so submarine volcanoes basically ancient ancient volcanoes um, because they're very strong concentrations of, of rare earth materials that are used to make batteries. But they're also, because they are submarine seamounts, they're island ecologies. So they have unique and distinctive ecologies with unique species um, like islands. And so this is potentially going to be another ecological catastrophe if we go down this route. Um, so what we should be thinking about is not all of us individually replacing our cars with another electric car, but, you know, if, if we're going to design cities which are going to be mutually beneficial for us and our interactions and, and all of the non-human organisms too, why are we not talking about the idea of a city in which people share, share vehicles? Reduce the pool of vehicles, have, a, have, it, have a, an availability of vehicles that people can use. Um, that would be a much better, better relationship. Um, you know, if you drive a car, how long does the car, how long is the car parked each day? It's probably parked for 23 hours. And maybe it's used for an hour. Yeah. I mean, that's an incredibly wasteful way to utilise resources. And, it, and it's completely unnecessary. are so far down the line now can we wait for cities to evolve organically or do we have to do it more as a top-down process we need both and i think a really good way to illustrate this would be to think about the way in which we we build in cities and we've all heard things about build back better but we don't actually know what that means um, you know, because what we have at the moment is we have a system of construction where we have a kind of general plan of how buildings are put up but they're not configured in a way that is necessarily conducive to the ecosystem that they're occupying. So, so in what way do the buildings of Bristol or the buildings of, of, of London replicate or try to assist what was the original ecology in this, in this environment? You know, it would be lowland beach ecology in, in London. It would have been a Celtic broadleaf forest in Bristol. Originally, this whole area would have been you know, covered with Celtic broadleaf forest. We don't think about that original configuration of the ecosystem at all when we build. And yet we could do, there are some very good examples, bottom-up examples, of where people have designed buildings which are much more consistent with the ecologies. Um, I'm thinking of a Japanese house built on the island of Hokkaido, um, which was fashioned from local wood and, and used straw impregnated into the walls to, to um, keep the house cool in the summer by losing water through, through latent heat. And because it was associated with bacterial decay in the, in, the, in the winter months, it actually heated the house. Now that's a really clever idea, but it's very difficult to then scale something like that and actually you know, scale it up to, a, to, a, to, a, to, a, to a, a village or a town or a city. But you can at least go in that right direction if you have people at the policy level thinking about the way in which they can configure that policy to encourage people to, you know, to, to, to encourage construction companies perhaps to take on board some of these ideas. I know it can't happen overnight. You can't suddenly go from 
the kind of inefficient brick buildings that we that we stick up to something that is much more mutually beneficial to, to humans and non-humans. But you can start to go in that direction. And the technologies are out there and they've been out there for, for, for tens, hundreds of years. It just needs a bit of bit of a push in the right direction. Okay, so um, we read in the news last week that the Galleries Shopping Centre in the middle of town, which there's no reason why you should know, it's a classic old-fashioned, you know, shopping mall, um, is going to be knocked down and replaced with a new development, um, a hotel, offices, shops, all the usual thing. I mean, I think that's a bit disastrous because we know what it'll look like. It'll look like everywhere else in the country as well. It's a new build. I thought we were supposed to be not, you know, doing new builds. But if you if you had a voice at the table, uh, if you could tell Marvin Rees and all, you know, the rest of the council, okay, this would be the way to go forward. What what would you advise them to do? So, so I mean, the very first thing that I think every city needs to understand is is its ecological context. How did Bristol develop? Where did Bristol? come from? What was the local ecology like? What was the vegetation like? What was the water supply like? What was the mineral supply like in, in, in the soil? And I think, you know, that, that evidence is out there. You can draw it together from, from disparate sources. Um, so we're doing it, this in Leicester, for example. We're trying to, which is, which is the city I, I work in, we're, we're trying to build a holistic model of how the environment has evolved over the past 10,000 years. And we can we can do that because we can even go back to the fossil record and see what what the vegetation patterns were like and how they've evolved and how they've responded to anthropogenic and also to natural changes. I think that has to be your start point. You have to start with what 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 would be beneficial not just to big business or the people who want to, to develop this, but what would be beneficial to the local ecology and and actually. Do people in Bristol have a voice about the way in which this is going to be configured? Have they been asked? Have their opinions been, you know, sought? Apparently they're going to be. There's going to be a consultation. Okay, so that might be a chance to kind of talk talk about, about some of these themes. And also in the process of thinking about the way in which the, the, the existing buildings are going to be knocked down, and the new buildings are going to be put up. Has anybody done a, a kind of assessment of the embedded energy that went into making the buildings in the first place? Whether those materials could actually be recycled and put back into the, put, put back into the new construction? Um, or is it all going to be cleared away and bulldozed and something going to be built, built on, on top of it? Which, is, which of course, um, a natural ecosystem would never do that. It would be absolutely suicidal for it not to recycle the the materials that are being concentrated into that ecosystem. And that, again, is a fundamental difference from the way we configure our cities. I mean, you know, when an oak tree is alive, it's supporting maybe a couple of thousand species in its in its ecology. When it dies and falls over, it carries on supporting many, many species. And eventually it gets decayed back into the ecology and it gets recycled. You know, what, what we're effectively doing is coming along, taking all the oak trees out, dragging them all the way, chucking them, burying them somewhere where, 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 where they're completely useless, and then trying to put, put something up again. I mean, that, that's, that's not going to be sustainable in a long, long t- time frame. And it really isn't because, you know, I mean, I, I talked about the long history of, of understanding ecological change. And, and obviously, you know, over the past 10,000 years, there's been substantial natural changes to the climate in this region. Um, but we know going forwards in the next three or four decades that the climate of this area is going to change. 
And so we need to be thinking about designing structures and buildings and ecologies now that are going to be able to, res to respond to that change. And I'd be really interested to know whether all of these different facets have been discussed as part, as part of this, this, this building plan. I, and also, I was going to ask you if you, in your work, have been in touch with, is it C40? The, the group of, there's a group of cities from all around the world who all, I think all have mayors and they've all sort of got together um, to join forces to, to look at how cities can help deal with the problem of the climate crisis. And it strikes me that what you, all that you're talking about, these, this idea of mutualistic cities, you need to be part of this conversation. So, so, so I'm not part of it, but I know, I know what you're talking about. And these are cities which effectively want to be predicated entirely on renewable sources of energy, for example. Yes, I think, I think that's... Um, my work has grown out of my association with, with, with um, people who, who study the Anthropocene. And, and so um, really, actually, um, so I'm not connected to that group. I can tell you exactly where the, the ideas of mutualism came from. It, it, so I'm part of something called the Anthropocene Working Group, which is an international group of, of, um, of scholars who are trying to understand the, the geological imprint of, of people on the planet. And one of the members of that group is a, is a, a chap called Peter Half. And Peter is the progenitor of this idea of the technosphere, you know, this, this interconnected sphere of humanity and all of its systems. And I've known Peter for a long time and we've had lots of conversations about this. And, and actually, the idea of a mutualistic city, the idea of a city that tries to evolve in a mutually beneficial um, way with the rest of the, the, of the Earth system, was a breakfast conversation between me and Peter. Because Peter, you know, bless him, thinks the technosphere is going to accelerate and accelerate and accelerate and therefore do more damage. And I'm resisting that. And we had we get on very well, but mutualistic cities was a was an attempt to find an antidote to an to a continually accelerating technosphere. So that that's where it where it came from. I think it's brilliant as well to put an idea and a metaphor to these things that can encompass, because we're hearing about so many different initiatives of putting, you know, the, the, the bricks in new builds to, to accommodate swifts or, you know, or bats or, I mean, and, and reusing grey water, we were talking about the other day, because we were talking about eco bathrooms, but they're all at the moment in our heads separate things although we think sustainability but the idea of this organism that is no longer a parasite yes. but is actually one that is part well what do you call something that isn't a parasite that's an organism well, that isn't we're, we're a parasite looking, we're looking for the opposite we're looking for a mutualistic organism a mut mutualistic relationship so mutualism is effectively the opposite of parasitism you know parasitism is where one organism degrades another one effectively but mutualism is where the two the two cohabit in a, in, in a ben beneficial way or components of an ecosystem cohabit in a beneficial way. I mean, you're talking about water and I, I've been at a conference this morning and I've been talking about water and actually the, 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 the effectively suicidal way in which we, we deal with water. So, you know, our, our solutions to, 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 to climate change are to all drive around in electric cars. Okay, but, you know, that, that's going to that's gonna solve the CO2 problem in the short term but you know one of the things I always ask people when I go to conferences is who flushed the toilet today who's been to the loo today I've been to the loo I flushed the loo and I know when I flush the loo I'm doing significant environmental damage 
because this is a ridiculous configuration for, for, for utilizing water. Um, and I use the example of Las Vegas this morning in Nevada because it's got serious problems now because it gets its water supply from Lake Mead behind the Hoover Dam. 90% of its fresh water supply comes from there. But because the, 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 the lake is dropping very rapidly, um, but the city is configured on this pattern of consumption. Pipe the water in, pipe the water out. And, and it doesn't work in that, in that ecology. But we could do really simple things that would, that would benefit the biosphere very quickly. I mean, if you talked about grey water, how many people have a bathroom where the sink is connected to the toilet bowl? I mean, it's ridiculous. That is so simple. That is so easy. And, but, it, but we don't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's but it's a, a very very simple solution. There are lots of really simple things that we can all try to do as individuals that will help. We definitely need the top down policy as well, um, but but we but we the the, the, the bottom up part of this, and, and that's one way. And 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 I'm intensely frustrated. You know, every time forgive me, I'm harping harping on about electric cars, um, and I also drive a car, and I'm also having this conundrum trying to wonder what to do. But, you know, why, why is nobody out there saying, well, you know, you could reconfigure a house and, um, you know, you could, you could capture most of the water. 25% of municipal water goes down the loo. That's, that's ridiculous. And it's not just the water, is it? All the things that go out in that water are also really beneficial to the, to the, to the broader ecology. So, but the, the, the impetus isn't there, I think, because it isn't something that allows you, it's not part of the corporate system that mm. allows you to sell water and make money from it. Exactly. It's what it always comes back to. All these conversations come back to money. And can it be monetized? Can it be sold? It's very depressing. Um, Unfortunately, I think we're running out of time now. It's so interesting that I think that people will be listening and will want to know more about this idea of mutualistic cities. Where can they go to find out more, other than the obvious and you know putting it in a search engine? Where, so, is so the, there much to? The, so the idea, I mean, the idea is we're trying to develop it. I mean, it was part of speaking at this conference at Bristol University this morning was speaking to a group of environmental historians. I mean, it's the European Society for the Environmental Historians meeting in Bristol this week. Um, so we, one of my very good colleagues, Julia Thomas, um, who's a historian, but we, we actually configured this idea of mutualistic cities together. We presented it as part of a session on the, on the Anthropocene. There isn't much out there yet, but we are trying to develop the idea. And if anybody is interested in this, we, we have written some articles on it. They're very welcome to, to, to contact me. I mean, I can, can give you my email. I'm happy to say my email yeah, address now. Yeah, please do. Yeah. So my email address is mri at le.ac.uk. Um, so it's University of Leicester address. I'm Mark. Email me and I'll, and I'll send you some information. I've got PowerPoints. I've got, you know, papers we've written on this. Um, I've now got a group of PhD students who are actively researching this um, in the Leicester context. Um, so, um, so you know, was just out in the field with one of them a couple of days ago, Hannah Sellers. And what Hannah's trying to do is understand how the ecology of the Leicestershire environment has changed over the past 10,000 years. And she's combining together all manner, of great PhD student, she's combining together all manner of data sets that I don't think we'd have even thought about combining 10 years ago. So she's using the fossil record of, of palynology, which is, a, you know, the pollen that's preserved in the sediments to understand how the environments have evolved. But she's combining that with Anglo-Saxon place names. 
of what was growing in this particular place at the time, and then combining it with lidar surveys of how the how the and putting that all together to develop a model of how the the county and ultimately the city can develop its ecologies in a in a sustainable way going forward. Um, I've got another PhD student working on water in the city and trying to think, you know, and 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 we've got the city involved, so the city mayor's involved, and that's really good because the city's in, get engaged with it. So there's a lot going on, but this is a nascent idea. It's mm. kind of at the start of d- mm. development, and so I'm very grateful to you, Penny, for, for giving me a voice to be able to talk about this. Um, but we, we we want to try to to push this because it is. From, 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 from my perspective as a paleontologist and somebody who's looked at the Earth system over hundreds of millions of years, unless we can develop these mutualistic relationships between the human and the non-human, we are in big trouble. And, and the fossil record tells us the kind of trouble we will be in in a relatively short space of time if we don't try to train the technosphere to operate as a beneficial component of the other spheres of the Earth system. to my weekly eco tips a little bubble of positivity and possibility in a world where it can feel hard to make a difference this week we're talking about veg stock and this one is credited to jack monroe the anti-poverty campaigner and all-around awesome human so she advises that you keep a plastic bag in your freezer into which you pile all your stock appropriate veg trimmings so that's onion skins celery ends the green bits from the leeks carrot peelings asparagus stubs all that sort of stuff when the bag is full Boil them all up. Um, Veg stock doesn't actually take very long to boil up, um, unlike meat stocks, Um, with some bay leaves and some peppercorns. And um, after about half an hour, you can drain it, um, compost the veg, and it will leave you with a red liquid. Strain it. That's really essential. I strain mine through a tea towel. And then reduce it down until it's thicker and sort of wine dark in colour. Then freeze it in ice cube trays and keep a bag in the freezer. I then throw one or two of those um, cubes into my soups and sauces. Most things I cook, to be perfectly honest, end up with one or two of those in it. Um, I also use bouillon stock as well, but I love capturing all the goodness that would otherwise be wasted from my veggies. Uh, Lots of really challenging news at the moment, um, and obviously veg stock isn't going to make any difference. I really recommend following the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, on social media for an informed view on what's going on. Thanks a lot. Bye. (music) 